Okay, I'd like to uh, I'd like to start, I think, by just reading the rest of Revelation chapter one. Uh, we read the first eleven verses yesterday afternoon, um, and just to just to read the rest of Revelation one because we're going to spend a few pages of notes just looking at that, and then we'll go on to the letters after that. But Revelation one and verse twelve. And then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me saying, fear not. I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. Write therefore the things that you've seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So (coughs) we begin Revelation, obviously we looked at the overview last night, um, but we begin Revelation with the revelation of Jesus Christ. And the first three chapters, as we saw, if you remember our sort of the table the table of joy, as I slightly self-aggrandizedly called it, but the table that summarizes everything, vision one, chapters one to three, is the revelation of Jesus, the unveiling of Jesus. And that, of course, is most centrally in focus in this section of chapter one. But I think in many ways, revelation chapter one is, to, is a, in a very repetitive structure. I think the same thing happens twice. Uh, and if you like, we have the revealer and then we have the revealed. Um, that in effect Jesus is presented both as the person who is revealing things to John, but then also who is the person who is the subject or the object of the revelation in the context of the second half of chapter one. And in that sense, the chapter is almost symmetrical, or no, not symmetrical. It, it goes through the, runs through the parallel structure twice in a row. It goes through the same sort of shape once on the left-hand side and then the second on the right-hand side. Obviously it begins with the revelation of Jesus, the revelation of Jesus Christ, and I then turned to see the voice that was speaking. And of course, that's a strange image in itself, isn't it? How do you see a voice? It's just, again, back to, you know, I won't flog this dead horse too often, I promise, but back to the parallels with John's gospel, like introducing Jesus as the word of God. It's not, it's not like unique to John, but it's a, something that John clearly finds much more arresting as an image of the identity of Christ than perhaps other biblical writers do. It seems to dominate his theology in a way, or his Christology, in a way that it doesn't out of some of the other New Testament writers. And here he's presented again. I turned and I I saw the voice, which, of course, technically you don't really do. But John is saying, no, because Jesus is, in that sense, the voice who is speaking. He is not just someone who speaks, but he is the speech of God himself. So you have the revelation of Jesus. Then, excuse me, And then you have the things that will soon happen, the things that are going to take place straight after this. And of course, you have that in both sections. God gave this to show his slaves. I'm over-translating the word in a way, but, you know, douloi normally would be slaves. That's how you translate it if you're speaking of masters and slaves. And that's how John repeatedly describes the people of God, slaves of God. And it's a slight sort of translation hobby horse, but if you always translate doulos as servants when it's a nice word and slaves when it's a bad word, you you can lead to an over- 
separation of what we speak theologically and what we speak socially. And I think that actually can be quite dangerous with people when wrestling with issues of both slavery and of the identity of the Christian life because you, you, you've effectively artificially formed them into two completely different words. So I think sometimes, slightly mischievously, commentators can consistently go with Duloy as slaves throughout, partly just to say, look, this... I'm not saying slavery is a good thing in the ancient world, but I'm just saying it's the same word that John could quite happily use of himself and not feel any sense that that was somehow demeaning. And it, it's just worth reading that through when, when you get into Ephesians and the rest. Anyway, throw that. So I've often done that just to kind of keep us mindful of that. It probably sounds slightly jarring on our ears. I think it should in a way. But that, anyway, the point being, I think God gave this to show what must soon take place, and that happens in verse 19, right? The things that you've seen, those that are, and those that are to take place after this. And as we saw yesterday, I think even just the repeated sense that Revelation is a book of what's going to happen soon lends weight, in my judgment, to the preterist interpretation over and against either historicist or futurist, and probably idealist as well. I think an interpretation of the book that strips preterism out altogether has to do something else with the references to the fact that soon something's going to happen that is going to change everything. And I think that's clearly in the early reader's day, uh, there was a very significant aspect of what the book is trying to reassure them. Then you have a reference to John, the word and the testimony. John bore witness to the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. I, John, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. It's very repetitive, um, deliberately so. It's trying to reinforce, I suppose, the parallels between the introduction to the book and the introduction to the Christ who is the subject of the book. Then a reference to the letters letters to the churches. John to the seven churches. Write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches. It's almost getting to the point of redundancy. Um, but I think, again, very deliberately from a literary point of view. There is a wonderfully Trinitarian statement early on in both sections. And one of my favorite Trinitarian texts in the whole New Testament is Revelation 1, 4 to 5. It's, it's, it, it's managed, it manages to do a three and a seven and in a very beautiful way. Right? So grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his throne and from Jesus Christ, who's then described, of course, in three ways. The faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings on earth. So you have God the Father described with three, in three ways, God the Son described in three ways, and then the sevenfold Spirit described in one way. So there's seven Trinitarian descriptions. The Spirit is seven, God at the Trinity is seven, and of course is three, Father, Son, and Spirit. It's a, if, I, if I set you guys the challenge of doing that and you didn't have Revelation 1, it would take you a long time to come up with a seven by three description of the Trinity, I suspect. But John's just dropped it in there early on. It's a very rich, packed Trinitarian text. But of course, the Trinity appears also in chapter 1, verse 9 to 10. I was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus, and I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. And for me, some of those sort of passive, almost accidental references to the Trinity, you find them in Paul and in Peter, don't you, where you just sort of, you know, Paul's talking about spiritual gifts. He says, oh, well, there's varieties of this, but the same Lord and the same Spirit and the same God. He just thinks in a Trinitarian way about all kinds of things that don't seem to be about the Trinity at all. And this seems to be, John's just introducing himself. He said, I was in exile because I was a Christian. But he talks about that in a Trinitarian fashion. I think that's, yeah. Let's not disappear down that rabbit hole, but it's a nice rabbit hole to spend to think about. Um, then there is, of course, a description of Jesus. Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen.
There's two triads, right? Two, three nouns and then three verbs. Three nouns. He is a witness. He is a fir- the firstborn. He is the ruler. And three verbs. He loves. He freed. He made. I, most of, when I preaching, was preaching on this, I didn't draw out most of these things because there's so much in there that you, you can't do justice to it all. You just have to <laughs> just choose from all of these wonderful three-point sermons you could preach on Revelation 1. It's just it's wonderful. But I, I just think that the statement of the work of Christ, he is the one who loves us and freed us from our sins by his blood and made us kings and priests. And probably our emphasis would more typically be on perhaps the first of those and certainly the second in our understanding of the work of Christ. And the third, the work of Christ as what Christ has made us to be, kings and priests, would probably be a distant third, I suspect, in our, in our emphasis. I'm not saying that's, this is the only text to draw our theology from, but I like that John has not only, a bit like we touched on yesterday, John has not only introduced us to the work of Christ, but also the work of Christ in how he makes us to function and serve in the world with him. And you can see the, almost a trailer for the theme that will emerge later, which is this is not just about the victory of Jesus, but the victory of the church in Jesus. And that's a beautiful way of thinking about what he does so you have a description of Jesus and then the more famous description of Jesus that we would generally run straight towards uh, which we'll look at in a a bit more detail in a moment but it's a sevenfold description it's a sevenfold I alluded to this yesterday sevenfold love song panning down from the head to the feet and back up again like the song of songs but seven elements of Jesus described we'll you know spend a bit more time on that in a moment Then there is a reference to Daniel 7, and in one case, Zechariah 12 as well, in both sections. Behold, he's coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him, even so, amen. And then in the revealed section, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man. So we have the one who's coming like a son of man on the clouds of heaven, alluded to, but with two different halves of the Daniel reference. So we have the one coming with the clouds and we have the one like a son of man. Same person, but different elements of that text being appropriated early on to set us up for the fact that Daniel 7 is going to be a critical text. So I'm, I, would, I, would I say this maybe? The, maybe apart from the Exodus story? But the most critical chapter probably in the Old Testament for setting up for us what Revelation is going to do. And so we are already expecting a ancient of days and a coming on the clouds of the Son of Man and some beasts attacking the people of God, but the Son of Man being given the kingdom. We are anticipating that to be the narrative shape of Revelation as soon as we've read Daniel 7 or sung it, as I found. I found that it even helps in church life. Just if you sing Blessing and Honour, you, know, the, the, you know, it's just a great song. It's just really, really fine. But it's Daniel 7 is unfamiliar, but that song, you know, your kingdom shall reign over all. And you just sing that song. People pick up on reference like, oh, yeah, ancient of days. They've got it in the background, even if they don't know Daniel well. And then you can draw on that to help people see this is, that text is setting us up for all the things that will happen in the rest of the book, including beasts with seven heads and ten horns. They're all in there in Daniel. So you can just almost prepare the ground for some of the weirdness later. With, and it is weird for most of us, but you can prepare it by seeing the Daniel 7 allusions early on. And then the I am statement, of course, I am the beginning and the end, which is described differently in the two sections, but the gist is absolutely the same, isn't it? That the Lord of history is the I am. I am the Alpha and the O. Well, obviously, we would generally go the Alpha and the Omega, because if we say the Alpha and the O, it almost sounds like a rapper or you know I'm the alpha and the O but I just think it sounds really great because in Greek for some reason that's what they do um, so they don't spell out the word omega so if you read it in Greek it just says I am the alpha and the O I love it um, 
And says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. And then, of course, on the revealed, fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I'm alive forever. Taken at face value, you might have questions about whether or not those refer to the same person in the Trinity. And I think you probably read the one on the left and say, the Lord God usually is referring to the Father, if we sort of pin down these things to the Trinity. And the one on the right is clearly Jesus. But when you get to chapter 22, you find the two phrases collide and are both spoken by the Lord Jesus, which is part of the point of the way John's told, done his Trinitarian theology, in a way. It's to reveal to us that the Jesus who's speaking is, in that sense, to be identified with the Lord God. So there's a lot, there's a lot there. Like there's a dense sort of the structure is, I hope you can see sort of, I don't think this is being imposed on the passage at all. I think you just see the same themes going through seven or eight different elements, really in, a, in not quite in that order sometimes, but it's being drilled through a line at a time to show us the connection between Jesus who reveals and Jesus who is revealed. And that's a lot, in large part, uh, helps us explicate when it says the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's the very first line you get. So a commentary has to deal with, is this the revelation that Jesus himself reveals? Or is it the revelation in which Jesus is the one revealed? And the answer is, of course, yes. And it's both of those things. The apocalypse of Jesus Christ is he is the revealer and the revealed. And you can see how they're both true, even when you see the whole of the rest of the chapter, as if that ambiguity is intentional to make us think, I wonder which one he is. And of course, both which I think is true of the faith of Jesus Christ elsewhere in the New Testament as well. So uh, that's a sort of structural summary. Um, But let's get into some sevens for a moment and just, you know, just there's plenty of sevens. There's an awful lot of sevens on this page. Um, So again, the the numerological, the numerophobias, numerophobic of us, I think, oh, biblical numbers, all hooey. Again, well, I'm going to like this page, but um, I, think it's, I think it's pretty convincing, <laughs> if I do say so myself, I suppose. Um, John to the seven church, you have a sevenfold God and a sevenfold spirit. And as we'll see on the next page, we have a sevenfold son and sevenfold churches. So we have four sevens already in the opening few verses, really. But John to the seven churches that are in Asia, this is the point I was just making. Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come from the seven spirits before his throne. Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings on earth. Okay, so you have an introduction of the sevenfold God. Then, of course, you have the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. One of those phrases issued seven times. I'm the Alpha and the O, I'm the first and the last, I'm the Alpha and the O, the beginning and the end, the Alpha and the O, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. In the book as a whole, this is. Saying seven times that phrase appears. You have seven times the Lord God, the Almighty, appears. And those are the references. And I'm trusting that you guys are going to, if I have made a typo here, I'm sorry, but I'm, I'm trusting that you guys will be able to look these up if you want, but we're not going to turn to them all because that would, could in the end get very repetitive. Um, I don't want to flog a dead horse with the seven thing, but there's lots of them. The God described as the one who sits on the throne seven times, and there are the references. Christ seven times, which again makes me wonder about the guy who crossed out the word Jesus and replaced it with the word Christ every single time in this. I don't know why, um, but you, you might have thought oh, that would be that would appear a lot more. Um, but his Christ is actually almost quite a climactic. Now the kingdom has become that of our Lord and His Christ. It's quite a climactic statement. It's not the everyday version of the word that you would often find in Paul, for instance, where Christ can seem like just like a name for Jesus, you know, it's sort of interchangeable. Whereas in, in Revelation, obviously he's often referred to as either Jesus or even just the Lamb. Uh, so there's a little bit more variety with the ways described. And then you have 14 references to Jesus. 
Um, witnesses of Jesus is used seven times. Lamb is used 28 times. God and the Lamb are coupled seven times. Like, you know, there's a lot of sevens. And I don't think that it's a stretch to see that they're deliberate. So back to that comment someone made yesterday about the narrative artistry and literary design of the book, given that it's a vision. Um, of course, we, we might go down the line of saying John just happened off the top of his head to get all of this because he was being led by the Spirit. That'd be fine. I wouldn't, I wouldn't worry me at all. But I think you certainly can't say that because it is spontaneous, it is not designed with incredibly symmetrical, careful literary artistry. There's just patently so much of it in there. You have a seven, sevenfold spirit. Um, I'm going to track across the bottom of the page. So looking at the sevenfold, by the way, the sevenfold spirit appears four times. Four sevens, 28. The spirit's mentioned 14 times, seven in the letters and seven elsewhere. Prophecy's mentioned seven times. You get any idea, okay? Sevenfold spirit... In, in functioning, of course, in, initially in creation, effectively the spirit's minute, there's the spirit broods over the face of the deep. We then have the seven things that the spirit creates. The light and day, sky and sea, sea land, sun and moon, fish and birds, animals, humans, rest. You have the sevenfold spirit in the anointing of Jesus in Isaiah chapter 11. Here I will give him the spirit of Yahweh, the spirit of wisdom, of understanding, of counsel, of strength, of knowledge, and of the fear of the Lord. So quite often you get these sort of little seven packages of the spirit. The sevenfold spirit in Zechariah 4. Behold, a lampstand, lampstand of gold with a bowl on the top of it and seven lamps on it. This is the word, and of course the lamps then identified with, you know, the lamps and the lampstands like Revelation, identified with prophetic representatives and the person of the Spirit. But of course the meaning of the seven lamps is, uh, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might nor by power, but by my Spirit. And then cross-reference across to two chronicles on that. So you have a sevenfold spirit functioning in the ministry of Zechariah to reveal the identity of the spirit and the fact that all that's going to happen in through Zechariah's preaching ministry, that he's going to see the restoration of Israel, is coming about because of the work of the spirit, not because of anything that Israel's going to do. And then the sevenfold spirit in Revelation 4 to 5, which, by the way, this is me setting up to say, yes, I think the seven spirits are just a way of describing the sevenfold spirit but that that's not a stretch biblically because the image of seven as a way of describing the spirit is something that we should by now be familiar with. Hello. Yeah. Yes, I'd go, I would, so would I hold to the standard interpretation of seven means fullness or completion? I, I would, but I would, I would tend to prioritize, tend to put, central the idea that seven is the weak and in effect to, to see sort of to use the category of genesis and then and then so i think the foundational thing about seven is that there are seven days of the week and the seventh is the sabbath i think that's the main thing that's going on with the number and that as a result of that derivatively it refers to the sense of completion particularly in the seventh we're now finally there we have the day of rest but i would go down that line more than what you sometimes hear which is seven is the number of perfection or Everything's all done. And I think I don't think that's quite right. In fact, I think one of the things you'll see when we get to the end of Revelation is that the sevens have all become twelves. And that the new creation, and there are, there's still sevens, um, because of course it's still John, and he still clearly likes the number. But the, we are not just dealing with a rest, but we are dealing with the perfect cube and the new Jerusalem, new city, foundation stones, apostles, all that. We've got a lot of twelves cascading out, and it's 144s and rather than 28s and so on. So in many ways, I think if what you mean is sort of completion in the sense of perfection and everything's now done, I don't think that's quite what the word, the number seven denotes. The number seven is more, as I read it, more to do with the, the weak. And therefore, the, the fact that the seventh means the week is now finished, 
in that sense, absolutely. Um, but not everything is now as perfect as, as it will ever be, which is often the way the word can, the number can get appropriated. You know, seven is God's number, six is man's number. I think, well, kind of, but I actually think six is man's number is more to do with the fact that man is created on the sixth and then the seventh is God's day, rather than because seven is perfect and six is fallen. I don't think that's quite the way the number symbolism works, but we can kick that around, as I'm sure we're about to. Yeah. I'm sorry, I missed the key noun. It's compelling when what? Yeah. Oh, and a PowerPoint. Okay, yeah, yeah. Well, all, like I said, again, you give this why always have management consultant preachers because they just make it look plausible by putting it on a chart. It's great. Yes. Okay, so given it, seven as the week, I see it. Why then use seven as the week to describe God, Jesus, the church, the spirit, and everything else like that? Um, I mean, in a sense, I, I don't know. Um, because in, in a sense that I can't, I can see why it's seven and not six and not eight or nine. I, it, he could easily, and of course he does, as we've just seen, he could easily have used three and he could have used 12. I think the number is a very rich symbol to him. But why it is so much more rich to him than it is... So Paul loves his triads, and Paul would generally do this with triads, wouldn't he? Um, and of course, you know, Israel, Apostles 12. You've got, so in a sense, 3, 7, and 12 are, the, are the, you know, the big ones, aren't they, that you would go to and say they're the key numbers that lots of biblical writers seem to be interested in. Um, at, but in a way, what I'm trying to do in answering the previous question is to avoid reverse engineering the meaning of the number from the fact that John uses it a lot and therefore saying it must be a God number, I think it actually comes the other way around. By this point, the number seven has been used hundreds of times in Scripture, and it usually means something to do with the, you know, the, and the rhythm of the week is the controlling image of seven. And, and even, in the, even in the structure of Revelation, we went back a few pages. Uh, let's No, not that way. This way. Hang on. We go back to the... What, you know, the table of joy. In fact, I should have a default button on this thing that just takes me back to the page I want. So even here, day on uh, you know, what's, you know, my page eight, again, the seventh here, Laodicea, not so much, but silence, temple, sanctuary, temple, and new creation are all very Sabbatarian. So the sevens, it's like, I'm not saying that he did this, but I could see how John would go from the seven-day week to the seven-day visions, which are going to form the structure of the whole book, Two, seeing sevens as a symbol of almost everything he's going to introduce as being critically significant in the book. Whether it be the judgment of God, the nature of God, the identity of, the, of Christ, the letters to the churches. That effectively that seven becomes the controlling picture for everything. I think if you do it the other way round, and you start with the fact that he says, describes God with seven words, seven ways, and then track all the way through, you end up, you risk saying everything of which there is a seven is perfect. And the churches, that's patently not what's supposed to be the case. And it's obviously not true of the bowls, the seals, the trumpets either. So I'd, in a way, I'd rather start with the week and work through and then go, I'm not quite sure why he's so interested in that number for everything. I think he's, by this point, it's a literary design point. And he's just going, I want you to see the way I'm describing everything is going to be sevenfold in this book. And that may be as much as there is to it.
Oh, no, no, no. I don't, I don't think we're suddenly being introduced to a revelation of the divine sevenness that we didn't otherwise have. I think that's, and that's, that's actually a good point to make in this context, that I don't think John is making a point about the divine life that we wouldn't otherwise know. I think he's, these are, this is literary design, I think. The one who is and who was and who is to come, the sevenfold spirits, and Jesus Christ, the one to... I don't think he's saying God is somehow seven in a way that he's three, clearly. And if I said that, I'd like to think you would all stone me or something. Um, but, I think, but I think by this, I think he is using seven as a, in a, as a controlling number for almost everything he's doing. I just think it's worth recognising that it's there, but I don't think there's to draw particular theological significance proper from it about the identity of God. Yes. Right. Yeah, what do you think about the connection between sevenness, rest, and then divine reign? I think, in the sense that I think seven, sevenness is connected to divine rest, I, com- I would completely go there. I don't think that necessarily gets us, you know, I wouldn't want to overread it into each of these and say, well, ruler of the kings to earth, and then the seventh beginning and the end is somehow representative of the previous six being reign. I, mean, I wouldn't want to overread it, but I think clearly that for God to rest is, in a sense, is a statement of God's, God's divine reign. Um, but I, I don't think that would... That wouldn't particularly help me with, I suppose, the question that you're asking and that Howard's asking, is, is there more to it on the revelation of God? But I, yes, I think that is what happens on the seventh day. And, of course, the sixth day is the day of humans' reign, in a sense, isn't it? The weak humans, humans are crowned. In fact, reference back to the, the psalm we heard, Psalm 8, which we heard earlier in the, read in worship. You know, the idea that human beings have all things put under their feet, that's on the sixth day. So it's a human reign followed by a divine So I, I totally buy that, but I'm not sure that with some of these it would particularly illuminate the being of God in any particular way. Yeah. Hello. Yes. So is, this a ref- is the reference of the Lord's Day, which uh, obviously John uses in begin- introducing himself here, I was in the spirit on the Lord's Day. The Lord's Day is obviously an eight, not a seven. Um, isn't it? Because the Lord's Day is Resurrection Sunday. The Lord's Day is the, the first day of the new week, and in that sense is the eighth. Does that lead us to, to think that John is thinking in terms of a new week beginning? And I think the answer is yes, and you've obviously just been reading Lightheart, <laughs> as I have. Um, because, and I think, it, I think I do. I think there is a, the, the, the week is done and the rest has begun, but actually now, you know, effectively the Christian life is lived on the eighth day, is lived on the first day of the new week, not the rest at the end of the old one and that the new creation is the ultimate eighth and I think John again to take John's gospel and revelation you have your seven signs um, so again if you're if you're still not persuaded that John likes sevens just go back and you know read John and you've got you know the sign stories and the I am's and all of that you're, you're going back into the land of the signs which again culminates in in my reading of it anyway the eighth sign being the resurrection and that that's effectively what the new creation is in revelation so yeah, lots of, lots of sevens and eights. Good times. We're going to find one seven and eight, which has, I don't think has anything to do with that and is utterly confusing and bamboozling and probably the bit of revelation I'm still the most confused on when we get to chapter 17. But we've got some time to try and figure it out between now and then. Let's see how we get on. So that's, in a sense, revealing God that way. Um, obviously, all three persons of the Trinity illuminated through the language of sevens. But ultimately... The sevenfold son is much the most central figure in the, in the text. Um, and so we have the sevenfold son introduced in this, as I say, in, a, in, in a, the word wasp um, is the sort of 
I think it's an Arabic word referring to a kind of love poem that functions by scanning down from the head to the feet and back up again. And that's obviously, as I've said a couple of times, the Song of Songs is like that all the time, isn't it? They have several, if you want to use that word, wasps in the book of Song of Songs. Where my beloved is radiant and ruddy and his temples are like this and his chest, his chest is like this and his thighs are like that and all the way down and back up again. And that's the way that the Song of Songs functions on a number of occasions. And it's probably the first bit of the Bible that I ever laughed at. Um, at sort of age of nine or ten in a class at school, and Mr. Cripps was very unamused, and you know we're all sitting there reading Song of Songs and going, yeah, breasts are like clumps of dates, things are all hilarious. But actually, this is a version of that, and with an interesting resonance with it, which we'll have a look at in a moment. Um, as in, it's more than simply re- refer- the same structure. There's an interesting parallel between Jesus um, and, and, the, and the woman. Um, but we've, we've commented already, I turned to see the voice of Jesus as the word of God. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And so actually, you, yeah, I turned to see the, the voice, and you were thinking, he's now going to see Jesus. And this, of course, is a theme we'll have a number of times in Revelation. I heard, and then I looked, and I saw. And that idea that the, what you see is not what you expected to see, given what you heard, is a major theme in Revelation. And by the way, when you get onto the 144,000 and the Jehovah's Witnesses, it really helps. Because the theme in Revelation of, I heard this, and I was ready to see something that I thought would look exactly like what I'd imagined when I heard it, but then when I eventually looked, it looked completely unexpected. That's happened a number of times already. It's happened here, where he hears, and then he turns and looks at the voice, and there's seven lampstands. It's what happens in chapter 5, and I heard the lion of the tribe of Judah's conquered, and I looked, and there was a lamb. Oh my, that's not what I thought. So then by the time you get to chapter 7, it's like, I heard 12,000 sealed from this tribe, this tribe, this tribe. I'm thinking this is a Jewish bunch. And then I looked, and I saw a great multitude that no one could number from every tribe and tongue and nation. So the shock is there each time, and that helps you so that you... The church is not hearing it going, oh, that's a bit of a, you know, you're trying to get out of the plain meaning of the text. You're going, no, no, John has done this multiple times and he's trying to introduce us to the narrative surprise he experienced in the vision by hearing and then seeing. Um, And again, we could go in, let's, let's flog the dead horse one more time. John's gospel revelation, same thing happens, isn't it? That the idea of the connection between what you hear and then what you finally see, even in the story of Thomas, the ones who heard and have not seen. And that's the connection between hearing and seeing and how sometimes what you see is not what you expected given what you heard. It's something John just finds very interesting himself. It probably comes out of his own story in that sense. You know, we found the Messiah. Seriously? Really? This guy? Nazareth? Anything good come from there? It just seems to be a common, something John is very animated by. Um, and he, of course, he turns and sees the lampstands before he sees the sevenfold sun. So the sevenfold church, he sees before the sevenfold sun. And I made this point in, our, in preaching through it. John sees the church before the Savior, and most people do. That's true today. Most people, I, came to, I, wanted, I wondered if I'd see Jesus, and I saw the church. That's what I saw. And then in the midst of the church, I found one like a son of man. That's what happens, right? Most of us. I mean, sometimes you get, you know, there's the wonderful stories of, you know, the person who sees Jesus in a dream and has never met a Christian. Praise God for that. But that's not the normal way in which people meet God. They, they, they turn in perhaps even expecting to see one like a son of man and what they first see is the seven churches and then in the midst of the churches, one like a son of man. That's where we encounter him. That's where we encounter him as well. He's one like a son of man, yet he looks just like the ancient of days. The hairs of his head were white like wool. His eyes were like flame of fire 
And uh, so again, you go back to the song, Blessing and honor be unto the ancient of days. Now for a while, I thought that song was wrong. Because I thought that song was using, it was singing about the ancient of days and then singing to the Son of Man. Your kingdom shall reign over all the earth. Sing unto the ancient of days. And I, for a, a few years, thought the ancient of days is distinct from the Son of Man and, the, and that song has blurred the two together. If you don't know the song, I'm sorry, but you know. It's good. Um, but the song has, has elided the Ancient of Days into the Son of Man, and I thought, why has it done that? And that's somehow, well, it's a little bit theologically inaccurate. And then I found, encountered in Revelation 1, I don't know whether the writer of the song had done this for this reason, but that he encountered in Revelation 1 that John does the exact same thing. And if John's done it, then I can't really go, out that's theologically inaccurate. Like, uh, I'm going to get a slap one day for all the things I got wrong. And this is one of them, because you suddenly realize what John is doing is he is saying, I look to see the one like a Son of Man, and... Blow me down, he looked exactly like the Ancient of Days. He had hair, the hairs of his head were white like wool, like snow, his eyes were like flame of fire. He... So John is making exactly that point. He's saying that in the, in the vision of Daniel 7, the Ancient of Days is here and the Son of Man comes on the cloud to the Ancient of Days with the hair white like wool and eyes like fire. But what I saw when I met Jesus was that the Son of Man is just like the Ancient of Days and embodies both of those characters, not just one of them. And once again, he is the revealer and the revealed. So the two arguably have become one. He has a golden sash around his breasts, which I just put because the word mastoid, you, many of us would know because of a mastectomy or what, mastitis or whatever. It's, a, it's, a word, you know, it's obviously a Greek root we still use in Britain to refer to breasts. And it is... <laughs> um, so Ian Paul sometimes gives me some banter on Twitter about various things. And I said I had just preached through Revelation 1. And just, I wrote one of those slightly sort of you know, twee tweets that you sometimes do, where you just sort of say, it's such a joy to preach on Revelation. Well, it was a non-controversial tweet. It was like, some of my tweets aren't. But this one was, well, I, you know, real joy to preach on Revelation 1 this morning, whatever, about the, you know, the glory of the risen Jesus or whatever. And then Ian responds underneath and just goes, did you talk about his breasts? <laughs> and I was like, no, I did not. And you are a monkey. That is a re- on, online. Like, I'm not going to get drawn into this. But that is what it says. Um, and obviously, that's the sort of mischievous thing that, People who read Revelation in Greek like to go, <laughs> you know, I know that's what gets theologians a bad name. But it's, I said that there was going to be a, a weird, almost over-identification between the identity of Jesus and the woman in the Song of Songs. And it's just, I'm, I'm clearly not wanting to say that Jesus is gender neutral or anything remotely like that. I just think it's interesting that, that John has used a word that is not the standard word for a person's chest, but he's actually used a word that would usually, although not, I imagine, exclusively, but usually be used to describe breast. And I just think that's a, it's an interesting quirk of the text that might be worth reflecting on in the parallels with the Song of Songs. I don't think he's trying to de, you know, de-sex the, the person, the, you know, the human Lord Jesus. I just think he's saying, using an unexpected word. And when Bible writers do that, it's good to think, why are they doing that? Is that? And I, I personally wonder if that's connected with the Song of Songs. The idea that the, the sort of song celebrating the beauty of the person, that something about the word is meant to arrest our attention. That's not the word I would have used. Oh, I wonder why he's done that. Oh, yeah, it's because it's, re- it's reflected the song. That's what they sing about when they love people in Jewish poetry. Maybe it's that. And then, as we, sort of, then we have the, seven, you know, the seven-fold song. The hair, eyes, feet, voice, hand, mouth, and face are described and... Again, so the song is identified in seven ways, as, as distinct, of course, from the clothing, which is separate, but the actual, the physical appearance of the, of the sun is described in seven ways. The hair of his head is white, that's obviously like the Ancient of Days, but white will be a 
major theme in the book of Revelation as a color representing, in that sense, purity and perfection and so on. The white stone, white clothes, white horse, white robes, white cloud, white throne. Um, in fact, for a minute, there are, yes, there are seven of them as well, which I hadn't noticed. There's a lot of sevens. Um, let's leave it there. But the idea that the whiteness in that sense represents the fusion of all of the... It, it's a completion color because white is what happens when all the colors come together. It's the sort of, the, you know, the rainbow all, all coming together. Is, it looks like white. So, the, so that to wear white is not like, as we often say, it's not like one color. It's an amalgamation of all the colors, but it's also the color of purity and unstainedness. Um, and, yeah... Yes, I, 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 so the question is, in Revelation 14, based on the point I just made about hearing and seeing being distinct and often getting a surprise, he sees the 144,000, what's that about? I don't, think that's, I don't think that's an issue at all, because I think the point in, of chapter 7 is that the, the, the identity of the 144,000 is very surprising when you finally see it. When you realize who they are, and they're from every tribe and nation, you go, oh wow, I wasn't thinking that. But John, having introduced that symbol, obviously returns to it, just like he can with the lion. It's not like to say that... It's, so when I'm saying he's not being corrected by what he sees, he's not saying, I thought it would be a lion, and it turns out it wasn't a lion, it was just a lamb. That's not what he's saying at all. He's saying, this is lion-like and lamb-like fully together. And the same is happening, I think, with the people of God. 144,000 there, of course, just, I think, means you know 12,000 from each of the tribes, and it's you know the number of completion, 12 times 10 times 10 times 10, and then times 12 again. So I think that's why that number is significant rather than because there are... Yeah, I trust I don't need to persuade this room that the Jehovah's Witnesses aren't right on that. But, you know, it, but it, it can help people who are a bit more thrown by in ordinary reading to go, oh, okay, that's why. Um, I, just, I throw this out as just a sort of you know, social and cultural point. I, I've, one of the things that happened for me, reading and then particularly preaching through Revelation in a very diverse context here, was just how... The, how language of whiteness is at risk of being misheard um, and how careful you actually have to be if you look like me to go, I'm not. I mean, I'm not saying you should throw the word out and that'll solve the problem. I don't think it solves necessarily very much. But I think the, very lang- the idea that people began, in Christian influence Europe, began referring to people like me as white, even when I'm patently not. I'm you know, peach or beige, depending on the season. But you know what I mean? I'm not, I'm not the colour of purity, but of course people use that word to refer to a skin colour which is completely, you know, if you, there's no way somebody, with, if you drove past in a car this colour, no one would say, oh, that's a white car. You know, it's just obvious, isn't it? And, and so to use that word that way, and to the fact that we still have to tick that, I had to tick that box on a form for my son this morning, signing him up for a football club, and it was like an ethnic group, I don't know why it needed to be on there, but it was, and had an asterisk by it, so you have to fill out the form, otherwise you can't get your son in the football club, but it's just like white, I, don't know, I just think, uh, Okay, I see why it's there. I'm not saying you can easily change it, but it's worth, I think, at a pastoral level, reflecting when you say white is the color of purity and you couple it in a country in which you still, whiteness is very centered, you have to be very careful with the way that's heard and just to make sure that you're clear. I think in some ways there's a, the causality is the wrong way around. I think what probably happened was Christianity introduced the color of white as the color of purity and fullness and joy, among, and many other cultures have too, and then people who are, like me, went, oh, that's a great colour to describe what I am. Um, I, do you know what I mean? I, I just think we've got to be a bit, I don't know. I throw that out there for you to consider. It's just, depending on your context, it's worth being aware of at the very least, even if you don't need, feel the need to mention it. Um, his eyes were like a flame of fire. 
Right? So the whole vision, as I said, resembles Song of Songs 5. Um, and Revelation 1 to 3 is a sevenfold love song to a beloved bride sent by a sevenfold lover. And I think there's more to it than that. Let's bring, let's bring the breasts back into it. And let's say that the breasts are supposed to communicate to us alert. There is a, lo- a Song of Songs love song happening here. Oh, wow. This is a sevenfold love song to a beloved bride sent by a sevenfold lover. And its main job is to urge passion and wakefulness a warning against sexual infidelity, and it concludes with a lover knocking on the door. And at that point, anybody who's ever, I was going to say, who's read the Song of Songs, or I was going to say, sung the Wee Willy Winky song. Do you remember the, you know, the peeping through windows, peering through doors song that we sang? Somebody, unfortunately, called, when I was a teenager, called it the Wee Willy Winky song, and it made me laugh forever, and I've never really forgotten it or got over it. But that, you, you use that language to describe the person of God, and you use that, those images, if you like, and think, I know exactly what that is. A call to fidelity, a call to passion, a call to being, staying awake. You know, my lover, I was looking for him, and where had he gone? And he was, I, you know, I don't want to fall asleep and miss out on him. And then there was a lover banging on the door in the middle of the night. You think, this is, just, are you seeing it? You see, some of you are going, what on earth is he talking about? No? I thought that was real. I found that was like a real wow moment for me. But you guys are looking at me as if I've got three heads. I'm just saying, if you read all the love songs in Song of Songs and then read the seven letters in Revelation, you'd think there is a load of analogy, overlap between the two in what the seven letters are doing. I think the seven letters are appropriating the appeal of Song of Songs to a lover who risks abandoning their beloveds, or no, to a beloved who risks abandoning the lover and falling asleep and committing adultery. And in that sense, it's back to the theme that you know, Howard was praying about this morning, the romance of the book of Revelation. That this is a love song. And the love, these letters, as fiery as they are, are chastening love letters to somebody who's at risk of falling asleep and or abandoning their lover. You, I'm surprised that's not got more so sort of, yeah, that's nice. I thought that was it's just a lot of people like, I don't buy that at all. I, I just think it's great. Anyway, um, maybe something to think about. Um, his feet... His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. So the metal feet obviously echo Daniel 2, this great big golden, well not golden statue, gold at the top and then silver and then bronze and then feet of iron mixed with clay. Um, but Jesus is the fulfillment, the metal feet, Jesus is the fulfillment of worldly empire. And it's just worth thinking that if you think about the church as the hands and feet of Jesus and you think that the feet of, God, feet of Jesus are being burnished, purified, glowing brightly, in the fire, it's not a very long step from there to say the people of God are glorified and refined and glow in the dark when we are, ref- when we are put through fire. Um, might be a stretch, but what else are we here for? Um, and the voice, like the, vo- like the roar of many waters, which is the first of many thunderous roars in Revelation. Jesus' voice is like a surging flood. It's like Niagara in you know, peak flow when they're just crashing down. You can't hear yourself think because the noise of this thing, you just basically stand in silence and stare at it, and the voice of Jesus is like that as he speaks. There's no way of imitating it, but you just, for Jesus to speak, it's just thunderously beautiful, rich, overwhelming, overpowering sound. And like a surging flood, the voice of Jesus cleanses the world and makes it new. And I think its placement at the center of the seven indicates its significance. This is, this is in the middle, the voice, the, the, the power of the word of Jesus. In his right hand, he held seven stars, and the stars, of course, are the angels of the churches. And from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And just an interesting, again, preacher point that what the powers of the world tend to do is they have a sword in their hand. And then, if you like, they, they have you know, a message coming out of their mouth. 
Whereas Jesus has a message in his hand and a sword coming out of his mouth. There's the idea that the word of God is the only weapon that he needs and it's the only weapon you need too. It's just, a, it's just interesting that the sword is in the wrong place. And so those who read Revelation as Jesus is, this, you know, the Mark Driscoll reading of Revelation really, that Jesus comes back to, as a massive warrior to fight and kill everybody, you think, well, yeah, of course, there's a lot of military symbolism in Revelation, but the sword is not where it would be if the martial reading of Revelation was correct, that Jesus, insofar as he's a warrior, is a warrior who comes with his, the sword in his mouth, not the sword in his hand. And obviously the reverse true of his mouth. And his face was like the sun shining in full strength, which can't fully be seen for its brightness. You can't see the face of Jesus at that point, and, and that would take us back to Moses, no one can see my face and live. There is something overwhelmingly bright about this. And then, of course, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Right? So his feet, his hand, and his voice reappear in the final lines. But he says, he laid his right hand on me saying, fear not, if you fear me, you don't need to fear anything else. It's just such a... I mean, that's a, that's a, a pastoral reassurance text if ever there was one. And I, I just... Again, it helped me preaching through the series to, in, in, in our church to, to say it, if basically any reading of Revelation that leads you to fear is wrong. Unless it's fearing God. But if it's to fear anything other than God, you got it wrong. Like, if you, are, if you wake up in the night sweating thinking the locust scorpions are going to get you... It has, it has produced the wrong fruit because the, the words of Jesus to John when he sees the most frightening reality in the entire book, which is the Lord Jesus himself, is to say, fear not. That's the first thing he says. And it's the first thing he says to him as well as to his church. And I find that just a, a beautiful reassurance. I often tell this story, but forgive me if you've heard it before. Uh, my wife's grandmother was a pretty fiery... Uh, indomitable lady, and she's now dead. Uh, she's a wonderful you know, Christian woman as well, and I'm benefiting from her Christian faith in the fourth generation of my family with my children, so I'm very grateful for her. Um, but she was a pretty fiery lady. And if any of you know uh, Don Smith, um, Don, she, she was the only woman in the church from whom Don would go and hide because he was scared of her. So yeah, that will give you an idea of what we're talking about here. She's you know, a fierce woman. And, uh, but she, she said over, over family dinner in the last couple of years of her life, she said, if I... When I reach heaven, I shall be very interested to ask God if I was right about the person who was vetoing the East Grinstead bypass. <laughs> and then she paused and she said, I don't know his name, but I do know where he lives. <laughs> like, that is so worrying. Like, at the time, you want to go, Nanny, you are not going to ask him about the bypass. You're going to fall on your feet as if you were dead. And he's going to have to say to you, no, don't be afraid. Get up. It's only me. Now, you're not going to talk about the bypass, but that's a facetious story. But, at, but, of course, at a more serious level, there are people who genuinely do that, don't they? They say, I, when I get there, I'm going to ask him what he thought he was playing at when my mum got taken from me when I was 11. There's more serious versions of that story, which the silly story help, gets, gets, gives you license to make the point, but I think the serious point is there. Some of us have it. I want to kind of hold him accountable for this. Like, that is not what you're going to do when you see the one whose feet are on fire. You're not going to do that. You're going to bow before them, and rightly so. So we meet the sevenfold son. One more before we turn to chapters two and three, just as we introduce them, and, and I'll have a, have a little bit of discussion on this, on this next page. Who are the angels of the seven churches? Um, are they angels or are they human leaders? Here's two arguments for them. I don't particularly mind which is right, but I just think it's interesting to... Hello, Simeon. Can we just clarify, is Theon an angelic spirit? <laughs> Is Greg Beale an angelic spirit? I, I don't know whether his wife would say that. Um, yeah, 
yeah, sorry. Greg Beale makes this argument. Peter Lightheart makes that argument. And well done for making the first good joke of the day. Um, it's never me. I've, I've tried for years, but it's never me. Um, so Beale says these are angelic spirits. He, for, he says, linguistically, angelos refers to heavenly beings in the visionary sections of Revelation and never to humans. In Revelation. It does elsewhere, but never to humans. The angelological argument. There are seven archangels in, known in Jewish tradition. And this could be the same seven. The astrological argument. Stars are metaphorical for saints and angels in the Old Testament and intertestamental Judaism. So you'd, connecting stars and angels is quite common. The representational argument. Angels appear in the Old Testament as those who represent nations or protective counterparts of peoples of, of the world. And you find the same in the New Testament as well. The angels of these children. Or, oh no, it's not Peter, it's just his angel. So that theme emerges. And the ecclesiological argument is one, way, one thing to speak to an angel representatively, but it's quite odd, Beale says, to hold a church accountable for the behaviour of its leader. Right? So that's a reason to say it's these, the angels of the churches are angels rather than human leaders. Lightheart goes the other way. He says, I think they're human leaders. So it gives the practical argument. Why couldn't Jesus speak directly to his angelic messengers as he does elsewhere in Revelation? What's the point of sending, asking John to write letters and send to angels? Jesus would just talk to his angels. What's, I don't understand why that would be needed. Or why send the messages off to the churches in Asia where the angels, do the angels live there or something? Like, why is this? And Lightheart, I think with some force actually says, that would lead me to think that John never really was called to write letters to anybody. That the whole thing is a metaphorical letter. And Lyle says that's given away too much, which is an interesting comment. The facetious argument, to put it provocatively or snarkily, where do angels receive their mail and how does John know their addresses? I was like, that's, that's got a little bit more force to it than it perhaps should. But I think, yeah, fair enough. If I'm literally being asked to write a letter to an angel, what on earth, what, what am I going to put on the envelope? That's weird. The grammatical argument, many warnings are in the singular, not the plural. The angel in Ephesus is charged with abandoning his first love. So it would be odd slightly that's not odd to say of a human leader who's representing the church but to speak of an angel as having abandoned his first love is a bit odd um you know what does it mean for the angel in Pergamon to repent like what are we what are we doing here you know the justice argument Jesus threatens to remove the lampstand from Ephesus if the angel fails to repent and that leaves the church at the mercy of angels who seem to be subject to volatile mood swings the very sort of enslavement to the principalities and powers from which Jesus delivered us and then the gospel argument the law is given by angels, not the message of Jesus. I think that's good. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm not particularly... I don't find that as strong. But I think a couple of the others, I think he scores a couple of good blows, actually. So I, I wouldn't draw an ecclesiological system. I mean, I've heard people say from this, therefore you should have solo priests or single senior pastors. Or I mean, I'm, I, clearly this is a far too tenuous text to draw conclusions like that. I'd want to get my church government theology from elsewhere in the New Testament. But... I don't know. It's an interesting thing to think about. And, uh, Sorry, it, it, couldn't, it couldn't Could the angel represent the whole church? I mean, well, I think, of course, the argument Beale's making is that that's what it is. Um, but I think, and, and that may well be right. I think Lightheart's critique of that is, unless, unless you mean the angel is the church, but I don't think that does work because John has carefully distinguished the lampstands from the stars. He said, actually, the churches and the and the angels of the churches are different, and he's you deliberately used different symbolism for the two. I think if the lampstand and the star were the same, fair enough, but he's clearly differentiated between them in chapter one, so I don't think that works. 
I don't know. How does Bill answer the theological question? I don't know, because his commentary came out first. And that's always, the most recent commentary often, you know, it's the first to present their case seems right until another examines them. And then another one gets up to respond to the things that he was examined by. I don't know what Bill would make of that. Um, I imagine he wouldn't go with him, but I don't actually know what the, what the response he'd make would be. Okay, let's, um, let's, re, uh, let's uh, have, a, have a discussion in a moment. Anything for, on, on your tables, anything from the revelation of Jesus... Or even, you can talk about this if you like. To me, this is a minor, um, a relatively minor thing. But anything from the revelation of Jesus, particularly on this page, that you feel like, I, I, would, I would love to, um, I'd love to get feedback on the Song of Songs thing, even if you, you guys aren't buying it, or even if you just happen to be quiet because you're all in, in you know, overwhelmed awe rather than because no one liked it. But just anything on here that you hadn't seen and you think, yes, that's great, or you hadn't seen and you think, ah, that's a stretch, or you had seen and you love anyway, right? Just, but what, are, what about Jesus became fresh to you when we were looking through that survey of him? Okay, just spend a few minutes on, that, on your table on that. Okay, I know that's a relatively short time, but hopefully enough just to keep, we've got to keep processing and trying to turn what we're hearing into worshipful reflection, I suppose. And uh, I hope that that's helped. I'm, what I hope happens on these days is that different people on the table pick up different threads and find one bit helpful, but someone else on your table finds another bit helpful, and uh, you, we kind of learn together and amplify what each other are hearing, which is great. Let me, um, let me read Revelation 2 to 3. I'm going to read the seven letters all in one go, so it'll take... Hello? Yeah, sorry. So that's back here. So this is, a, this is a coming on the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, is a fusion of Daniel 7 and Zechariah 12. So the coming on the clouds, the vindication of the Son of Man, coming to the Ancient of Days and receiving the kingdom, coupled with the idea that the people who pierced the shepherds in Zechariah 12 are going to re- recognize what they've done and howl in anguish that they have killed their anointed one. And that that's... Those two texts are being deliberately stuck together in a kind of, you know, mishmash for people to reflect, wow, hang on a second. So the the Son of Man is at the same time going to be vindicated and given the kingdom as he is going to have people mourning because they killed him. Which, of course, is the paradox at the heart of New Testament Christology, really. That Jesus is both going to be recognized by all nations and killed by the nations and held over. Um, And that's the sort of deliberate sticking them together. I didn't dwell on it there because... In some ways, I think it's just a sort of, it's a classic, I'm going to quote two texts as if they were the same text, stick them next to each other and let you figure it out, which is what John's done for us. But I think the theme obviously will come back a lot later because that's really the same theme that's at work in the lion and the lamb, really. He's the one who gets the kingdom, who roars and, you know, like, you know, our God is the lion, he's, he's roaring with power and fighting our battles. He's the lamb who was slain for the sin of the world. He's, so I think that's what that text is introducing for us. Yeah. Okay, I just want to read chapters two and three, um, which will take about 10 minutes. So I was going to say, get comfortable. Maybe don't get comfortable because these are not necessarily comfortable texts to read. But if you, want a, a, if you want a structure for thinking about them, I'm not going to go through this page a line at a time, but you might want to track through this page as we read through because what you'll find, of course, is that every, every church receives affirmations, warnings, and promises. Well, I say every church. You'll see that that's not... Not quite true um, uh, in that Laodicea doesn't get really any affirmations at all. Um, 
And there are not really warnings to a couple of them, as I said before. There are two that get pretty much all warnings, two that get pretty much all affirmations, and three that are a bit of both. But anyway, as we read them, you'll, you'll see. So the angel of the church in Ephesus writes, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil and your patient endurance and how you can't bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and aren't and found them to be false. I know you're enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you haven't grown weary, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love that you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you've fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I'll come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you're rich. And the slander of those who say that they're Jews and aren't, but are a synagogue of Satan. Don't fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested. And for 10 days you'll have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers won't be hurt by the second death. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, The words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name. And you didn't deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore repent. If not, I'll come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I'll give some of the hidden manna, and I'll give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, The words of the Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of their works, and I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches her mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works." But to the rest of you in Thyatira who don't hold this teaching and who haven't learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I don't lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron as with earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my father. And I'll give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. 
And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you're dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I haven't found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. And if you won't wake up, I'll come like a thief and you won't know at what hour I will come against you. Yet you still have a few names in Sardis, people who haven't soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I'll never blot his name out of the book of life. I'll confess his name before my father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, the words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I've set before you an open door which no one's able to shut. I know that you have but little power and yet you've kept my word and haven't denied my name. Behold, I'll make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they're Jews and are not but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet and they'll learn that I've loved you. Because you've kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I'm coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I'll make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never should he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you're lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I'm rich, I've prospered, I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I'll come into him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Eugene Peterson says at the side, the church is the place where we come to find out what we're doing that's right. It's a place of affirmation. The church is the place where we come to find out what we're doing that's wrong. It's a place of correction. The church is the place where we come to hear the promises. It is a place of motivation. No Christian community can do without any part of this message. I wonder, I've, listed, I've schematized it all there for you, so it's kind of obvious. It's, like, it's a very, in a good way, a very formulaic set of messages, isn't it? It begins... The words of the one who, and then describes the identity of Christ using imagery that we've already met in chapter, in chapter one. It finishes with a, a mixture of the one who overcomes will be blessed in this way, and, or the one who conquers, and he who has ears, let him hear. And in between, you get affirmations, warnings, promises. Just be worth, again, on your tables, just think through, in your, in your church, in your community, which of those warnings, affirmations, or promises do you think are the things that your people most need to hear? And that's, ask that question whether you're responsible for delivering those things. You could be self-critical, as I'm the pastor and I don't think we ever mention that. Uh, or you could say, as a congregant, this is what I think we're missing. But which one of those, you, 
of, you know, there's a whole bunch of them, right? And some of them overlap. And some of them you might say, well, I need this. But the odds are that probably none of us are serving people who are being, as far as I know, people who are being martyred. So we might say that that particular challenge isn't the reality for in our congregation, although, of course, it will be an issue for people in the countries that many of our people come from, but probably not here. But which of those are? Which are the pressing issues for you? And even hearing them all read like that, which probably we don't often do, what jumps out at you as you hear it? And you think, oh, that, that's a big theme. And I don't think I talk about Jesus that way. Or I'm not sure my people would hear that or know that in, this, in the way it, that Jesus has delivered it here. Just maybe discuss that. What does your church need to hear from the seven letters, do you think? Okay. Again, not a huge amount of time to talk about all of that, but just hopefully helpful to reflect for a moment and think I'm, the two conversations I've dipped in on is interesting the extent to which we probably feel like there's a bunch of stuff in these letters that we really never say if we're not made to say it by preaching through passages like this that that you know what I mean it, it and I think we probably most of us probably already I, I'm generalizing for many of the people in the room I know but that, that's that's naturally our mode it's mine too um and it's, in some ways, that's the power of these letters. It's the, it's the power of the canon of Scripture. It's the power of, and it's, it's also an argument for expository preaching, isn't it? Of saying, we're going to try and do all the Bible, you know, in, you know, obviously whole books at the time or whatever, because it makes you do the bits you don't want to do. Um, and I'm afraid this is not the end of judgment and warnings to the book of Revelation, as you probably know. Just a couple of things to draw out from this page, and then we'll jump. Um, Jesus, the synagogue of Satan is probably the phrase that sounds to our ears the most anti-Semitic in the book, and that's why it's just worth bearing in mind that this is a Jewish Jesus speaking through the mouth of a Jewish John in the context of an almost entirely early Jewish church. So the, the challenge here is not Judaism, the challenge here is people who are purporting to be Jews and aren't, um, and that's actually exactly what you find in Paul. Um, but it's interesting that in Smyrna, there's no sense that they might repent, whereas you do have that in Philadelphia, where there's a hope that the false Jews will convert. And even they'll come, to, they'll come and see, they'll fall down at your feet and know that I've loved you, which is exactly what Cornelius does to Peter, isn't it? A Gentile comes to a Jew and falls down. Yeah, for real. When he says false Jews, is he actually saying Jewish people? Who, what does he mean by that? Yeah, does he, what does he mean when he says false Jews? I think he means Jewish people who are claiming still to be the seed of Abraham, but who are not the seed of Abraham in that they've rejected it. The, they've re- rejected Christ and I think in that sense that would be very much of a piece with the bread of life debate in John 6 and John 8 and you know in, where Jesus eventually says you're of your father the devil um, which is you know were it taken in isolation in the context of anything else you'd say that's the most anti-semitic statement in the bible but the point is this is this is the Jewish Jesus about to die for the nation saying that's what you are if you reject me in that context so it's a very I think with that context I think that's what he's talking about and Paul is actually quite a lot softer isn't it? On, on that issue, Paul, the way Paul comes at that issue is, much, I think, is I think it's co- theologically compatible, but in tone, it's different in nature, partly because of his mission. Tony, to what extent, well, to what extent should we apply the letters to a specific church? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Great. Okay, so to what extent should we apply the letters to an individual congregation rather than the church in a city at large? Um, and I think in some ways I think that's easiest to answer by what you obviously wouldn't do. Um, what you wouldn't do is to say, we're the church in Philadelphia, they're the church in Laodicea. That's a, <laughs> that's a, they're going to get vomited. And we, you know, because that's 
you're probably going to get vomited for smugness, if nothing else. Um, I, clearly, here, the distinction isn't made, is it? I think in some ways that we always have that with New Testament application, don't we? That there are not, It's not like you have multiple congregations with entirely different theological frameworks this early in the church's development. Um, so I think here, applying it to a local congregation is exactly what we're called to do. And in the end, I don't feel like I've got divine authority given me by anybody to speak these words over other churches when I'm not a pastor anyway. Um, but I think certainly if you looked at the church in the nation, you might conclude that the church in the nation was in a slightly different place and had slightly different risks than your own church. Um, I just think you have to be careful not to do that in a better than, worse than, um, because you might say, oh, actually, I think our church is, this is our risk, the church in the nation has that risk, and we need to be mindful of both so that we don't overcorrect against this one and create, make that problem worse, or, or whatever. So, yeah, it's a, it's a good question, actually. Um, and then just a couple of characters who get introduced who I think reappear later. I mentioned this yesterday. Balaam and Balak pop up, as you notice. The imperial cult is based in Pergamon, which is why that's the seat of Satan's throne. Um, again, you just sort of study the background on it. You'll quick, if you're preaching through it, you'd quickly come across that in the commentaries. But Balaam and Balak, again, you have the king who then hires the false prophet to speak curses against Israel. They will reappear in chapters 13 and 14. And then Jezebel, who again, I think, reappears as the harlot much later in the book. Jeze- the harlot is very like Jezebel in her makeup, her corruption. To Not that there's anything wrong with makeup, just to be clear, but the, but the way she's pictured actually is quite Jezebelic in the way she's described. And obviously she's leading people to eat idol food, worship idols, and commit sexual immorality, which is what Jezebel, the historical queen, did. But it's also what the harlot in Babylon is doing as well. Yes, so do you mean, in the, in, is this in the context of like a series of dialogue with churches that John has had? Yeah, I get, you get the impression here that John probably knows the churches, but these are, not the kind, these are very different to the kinds of letters that Paul ever writes, aren't they? And they're, they're clearly meant to be letters not from John, but from Jesus. It's re- and I think that's, that's pretty emphatic. It, I'm not saying, therefore, John didn't actually write them down, but I think it's worth seeing that one of the reasons for their very, very different tone is... <laughs> I'm not sure even Paul at his angriest quite says it like Jesus does in the letter to Laodicea, right? Even, Gal- even in the Galatians 4 and 5, I don't think you ever get Paul doing that. And I think that's, why, that's rightly so, because there is a degree of, you know, when people say, well, Jesus talks to his church like that. Jesus calls people snakes and vipers. He's saying, yeah, to me, that's a little bit like saying, Lionel Messi shoots from 30 yards out and it goes in. I think, yeah, and if you're as good as him, you can do it too, but most of us need to get nearer. And I think the same is true, isn't it? The same is true of Jesus. Is, but there are people, they do it online. People who say, Jesus speaks like this. I'm just following in the steps of the master, yelling at people. You think, ah, I think he gets to do that. I think he, you're not him. Like, and I'm not sure your mandate is the same. And I think even Paul indicates some of that by being spitting bullets and saying at one point they should castrate themselves, which is pretty fighting talk, but he doesn't talk like this, and rightly. So I think, yeah, that's a helpful clarification. Yeah. Oh, I see what I mean. I don't think... Yes, yeah, so the question is, if Jezebel equals Harlot equals Jerusalem, how do you... You know, how do you square the circle with the fact that this Jezebel is trying to get people to eat idle food and commit sexual morality? Um, 
I don't, you see, I don't think the equals equals are of the, I don't think of the same nature. I think Jezebel, when I say she reappears, I don't mean this individual who is clear, there is clearly a woman who is leading people astray in the city in Thyatira. And I'm not saying that woman is, I think that's a real person. I think there is a false prophet working in that city who is leading people to commit sexual morality. What I'm saying is the image reappears. I don't want, sorry, in saying she reappears, I don't want to say this woman is the person that is being discussed later. Yes. Yeah, we'll get onto that much later. I, I, I don't think I could, I don't think I can adequately make that case here and now on the fly. But I don't think the Jezebel, when I say, I'm just trying to clarify what I mean by she reappears. I don't mean the woman at Thyatira is Babylon. I mean the imagery of Jezebel, Balaam, and Balak introduced here will come back with a vengeance later on in the book. And when, the, when it does, we've already met it. I'll just take Rob, and then I've just got two more pages to do. So I'll just get, take your question. Yes, I do, actually. That's a really good point. Does the imagery echo also the imagery of folly and wisdom in Proverbs? And yes, I think it does, because Proverbs, of course, is a, Proverbs is a love story too, isn't it? Proverbs is a father trying to teach his son how to get married to the right kind of woman. And don't get married to this kind of woman. She's an idiot. Get married to this kind of woman. But he doesn't mean primarily choose your wife well. That's how often we might practically apply it. He mainly means choose wisdom, don't choose foolishness. But then, of course, at the very end of the book, the romance is complete because you now find the noble wife, the wife of noble character. So Proverbs is a love story too. They're all love stories in the end, aren't they? But, you know, so yeah, that's a, that's a really good, um, broader biblical theological point. And notice here, excommunication is pictured as vomiting. I just, I think that's quite an, int- and not that excommunication is something that we probably give any, even enough time to think about in a way, but rem- severing from communion, you know, barring people from the Lord's Supper, is pictured here as Jesus vomiting. It's, again, it's strong language, and it's, and it's appropriate. But interestingly, having said that, you immediately get, but it's only because I love you that I'm reproving you like this, which is such a... I don't think it softens the warning at all, but I think it gives you somewhere pastorally to go with the person whose conscience has been pricked by the letter. The, the fieriest letter has the most reassuring conclusion, which is I'm standing at the door knocking, and seriously, the moment any of you opens that door, I'm going to come in and eat with you. There's communion language, the language of the Lord's Supper pictured there, I think. Um, so I just think it's a, yeah, it's a stunning, stunning letter. Very briefly, a map, just because... What? What has happened to my squiggle? Is the, have you got a, on your page? It looks... Tarek, what has happened to my... Yeah, Tarek is literally holding his hands up. Which got, I don't know how that happened. Um, so... Yes, that would look like a very unimpressive thing. On the, on, probably on the piece of paper you have, the ark is this glorious and impressive ark that runs up from Smyrna up to Pergamum and then down and finishes in Laodicea. Um, John, like Paul, writes to seven Gentile cities. Asia, is, Asia is, is liminal in the sense that it's between, West, as in Asia Minor, what we now call Turkey, is liminal in the sense that it's in between Rome and Israel and it's sort of that middle space between, you know, obviously it's under the Roman Empire and it's under Jewish influence in many ways, but certainly the, the churches are. But it's, it's interesting how it sort of forms the overlap between the Gentile world and the Jewish world. Um, it is, you could even say, the land between the Jewish garden and the Gentile world. And even between the land beast and the sea beast, as we'll see later, that the, 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 the beast stands with his, on the shore of the sea, one foot on the land, one foot on the sea. 
Um, and I think there is almost some geographical references there. It could have other resonances too. The seven stars, obviously, we now think of there as being, we don't think like that at all. We think of there as being, well, until recently, we thought about there being nine planets and now there's only eight. Um, you know, we, every generation evolves in its understanding of the sky. They thought there were seven stars, sun, moon, Mercury, Venus, Mars, Jupiter, Saturn. That was a very common view in the ancient world. And by the way, just as a totally irrelevant side, side thing, it, Michael Ward's book, Planet Narnia, may, has anybody read it? Anybody read Planet Narnia here? It just makes the most astounding case and like totally convincing from beginning to end, almost as soon as you start, that the, that the Narnia stories, that C.S. Lewis basically never said it in his entire life, but that it's very clear when you know that what you're looking for, that he wrote the seven Narnia stories, each one shaped by one of the seven planets. So the, people had done it for years going, what's Lewis doing? Is there seven? What's the significance? And that he just basically taken the seven planets and that each of the seven Narnia stories represent one of those seven. And it's... When, as soon as you see the case laid out, you think, oh my goodness, what a cool detective story that he's been dead 50 years and someone's cracked it. It's really great. Nothing to do with Revelation, just saying. Um, and even, is it, you know, it's like a sort of giant, it's obviously pan, the, the whole point about the ark is, of course, not to say, here's where these places are, but notice that they are following a, basically a, a semicircle. Is it like a giant clock sort of winding down? Is it west to north to east is, that dawn is now coming? You know, there's lots of ways in which you could read the geographical symbolism, and I just wanted to put the map up there so we could see it. Um, although, if not slightly tainted by what now looks like a sort of someone is giving, being given out in cricket. That's sort of the finger coming out like that. So it's not as impressive as I originally intended, but nevertheless. Um, but then just to see also... The Seven Churches and Biblical Theology. I love this page, but this, I'm sure, will get the same reaction as the Song of Songs point did um, of some sort of baffled silences. Um, I think you can... This is a lightheartism, but I think it's really great. You can map the development of the seven churches onto biblical theology as it unfolds, that the warnings and affirmations of each letter correspond to a phase of biblical history. That in Ephesus, you're in the language of Eden and the fall. The Lord walks among tree-like lampstands, the church has fallen from its first love and the reward is the tree of life and the paradise of God. It's pretty easy to see, I think. Smyrna, the period of the patriarchs, and especially the Joseph story, the story of death and resurrection, of a counterfeit Israel who brings suffering to a true Israel and a reward of prison followed by elevation to the crown. Pergamon, the story of Exodus in the wilderness. It's kind of obvious. Balaam and Balak, prophet and king, a sword against the sexually immoral and the reward is hidden manna and a stone which has writing on it. Story of the Exodus and Ten Commandments and wilderness. Thyatira, the monarchy, especially David, obviously you have Jezebel seducing Israel into idolatry. Uh, you have God searching minds and hearts. And the reward, of course, is very monarchical, isn't it? The iron rod, the authority, the morning star, which is a text that we would normally only apply to Christ, but Christ applies it here to his people as well. You will rule the nations. Sardis, the later prophets, especially Jeremiah. You're apparently alive, but you're actually dead, and I'm going to come like a thief at any hour and you're going to get whisked away into exile implicitly. And the reward is your soiled garments, just like happens, of course, in Zechariah 3, are going to be replaced with white ones. Philadelphia, the return from exile. You have the key of David, despite the fact that you have little power, but you're going to come back. And I'm going to deal with the people like Sanballat and Tobias and all the rest who say that they're Jews but actually aren't. And your rewards are you're going to get pillars in a new temple, in a new Jerusalem. And finally, Laodicea, perhaps, the, this is the least clear, I think, but the idea that this is perhaps the period of Christ and the apostles, that there are lukewarm disciples in John's own day who are at risk of being spewed out, and Jesus wants to share a meal with his people, but the reward is that you share the throne of Jesus. 
This, I said that was a lightheartism. It's, it's actually, I've just realized from the footnote, it isn't lightheart. Lightheart introduced me to it. I then went back and found it in James Jordan's Three New Eyes. I just think that's like cash back or words like that. If you're an Alan Partridge fan, I just think it's glorious. <laughs> Again, I didn't preach. I didn't know what to do with this in preaching. I thought I'd need to have preached seven messages on the letters to do that. I just think it's great. I just think it reveals something of the divine as well as the human authorship of Scripture that, that things like that are, at least as I can see them, pretty clearly in there. So, on that bombshell, to do a second partridgeism in 30 seconds, uh, we're going to break for half an hour and we'll be back at 11.30.